The story of Jacob and Esau is a familiar story. It's well known. It becomes a bit of a pattern that's noticed in families. One ascendant above the other in a surprising way. Now, in our family, it was like that. My sister's two years older than me. Our family loved sports and basketball in particular. Jackie Mounts was better at basketball than I ever was. In fact, two weeks ago last night, we were in Murray, Kentucky, where Jackie was put into the Murray State University Athletic Hall of Fame for her experience there as a basketball player from 1975 to 1979. She was a great player. She was 18 years old, out of high school, and I loved her coach's name, Drop Rollett. She had been there for a long time at Murray State University. She knew everybody in women's basketball. When she was 18 years old, out of high school, just graduated, she was invited to the Olympic trials in 1975. First thing Dewdrop Rollett did was walked her right over to Pat Head Summit, who was a player coach that year from University of Tennessee lore, and said, uh, hey, Pat, here's that girl I've been telling you about. This is Jackie Mounts. Jackie, this is Pat Head. And uh, then she went on to an extraordinary career, just crazy night. She was at Vanderbilt one night and scored 27 points and had 28 rebounds. I mean, statistically, just a crazy night and had a good run there. Uh, she played in all the great arenas uh, throughout the Midwest and the South. Uh, she played at Freedom Hall several times. And University of Louisville, she played the women at five before the men would play at seven. University of Louisville's men's team during those years ranked number one in the nation. Had a player named Daryl Griffith who was an All-American who was leading them. His sister was playing for the women's team. And so she'd played before a full house at Freedom Hall and, uh, in Louisville. Played at Memorial Coliseum in Kentucky. Uh, she was the first woman athlete collegiately in Kentucky who got a full ride to play. She never bought a pencil. <laughs> Cedarville gave me $500 to go play basketball there. And uh, Jackie was playing in these great arenas all throughout the South, in the Mid-South. And we go to Tiffin, Ohio and play in a junior high gym, play Tiffin University. Now, by the way, it was college-sized court. It was the greatest junior high gym I've ever been involved in. But we'd roll up on a junior high, and Jackie's rolling up at Vanderbilt and UK and rolling up at, uh, you know, Freedom Hall in Louisville. And uh, so I had to deal with uh, the, the Esau's issue here uh, all the time I was growing up. Uh, the very issue that bedeviled Esau was uh, mine because... The Lord, and we're going to get into this in one particular message, which may be the most interesting and the most difficult to wrestle with. We're going to get into God's favor on Jacob and not Esau. Uh, but the normal thing of what you might imagine didn't happen in Isaac's family. Uh, for Isaac and Rebekah, it was the second born who became the ascendant one. Jacob uh, was the one through whom the promise Came. This issue bedeviled Esau and he wrestled with it. He was actually embittered by it. We're going to talk more about that in a future message. But God chose Jacob through which the line and the promised line of Jesus Christ would come. Now God has ordained something else this morning and that is that you and I would be together in Genesis 12, chapter 25. And we would face the first lie in Esau's fables 
and we would be invited by God to embrace the truth. The lie, number one, little habits never mushroom into bad ways of life. Come with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. I want to read this to you this morning and talk about it. Let's go three different directions. Number one, let's face the facts of the birth. If we're going to start with Esau and start someplace in his life, let's start at his birth. And even from his birth, yea, before that, even from his gestation. During pregnancy, you could tell we had an issue emerging here. So we'll look at the facts of his birth first. Second, we'll look at this history and how it asks the people of God at least three questions. And finally, then, we have to face the lie. Each week, we'll face one of the lies. And the lie this week, again, little habits never mushroom into bad ways of life. This message is entitled, Infighting, the Struggles Begin Early, Genesis 25. Let me read the first seven verses to you and then read verses 19 through 26 as well. Abraham, I'm, I'm sorry, 25, 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahiroi. Verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, hear the word of the Lord. Now let's set up the history of Esau's birth. Not for the purpose of some irrelevant piece of thousands of year old happening, but for the purpose of understanding this history as an example for living in our day. Let me say two things about the history. The blessing to Abraham is passing on to his son Isaac. In verse 11, 
the word that I read after the death of Abraham, God, here's the word, blessed Isaac, seems to lie benign in the text. Okay, God, God blessed Isaac. No, no, no. Remember, when God got a hold of Abraham, a formal godless idolater in Babylon, put his arm around him and said, come and follow me. I'll show you a land that I'll give you. I'll make of you a great people and I will bless your people. Land, people, blessing, land, seed, blessing. Those are the three key words of the Abrahamic covenant, God's promise to Abraham. So what we have here is Abraham has died. Did the promise die? Did the hope through the promise of a coming one die? No, not at all. The, Abraham died, a central figure, a key figure. He died, but the promise kept going. It did not depend on one man. And when he, the text says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, what is being described is God's plan is moving forward. It is not stopped by the death of one man, this, even a man uh, so significant as Abraham. What we see here is, again, the notion that no one, no one, no one is indispensable to God's program. Good people die, and others come behind them by God's design. What's amazing to think about is that at one point, Warren Wiersbe was our pastor here at Calvary for nine years. In 1962, after suddenly and unexpectedly, the Lord came for Brother Estep. Warren Wiersbe became our pastor. He was here for nine years, and it was an unbelievable run. He left here to take a very important pulpit in evangelical faith in America. He became the pastor at Moody Church in Chicago. And then who could ever replace Ted Epp and his voice on Back to the Bible broadcast? He'd been on for a generation. Was that going to die out? They tapped Warren Wiersbe, and he moved to Lincoln and, and, and worked in that season of his life in ministry. Warren Wiersbe's gone now. He's in heaven. And here I stand where he stood. And let's all not laugh at once. It multiplies one's feelings of inadequacy. But it reminds us always about Jesus Christ, who is always to be at the center of everything. Not a man, but Jesus Christ. The promise of God centered in Jesus. The hope of God centered in Jesus that can be ours when we receive Jesus Christ into our life. When we lift him up, he's the point. So that men may die, but the promise continues. And that's what's going on here. And so God's plan moves forward on the rails of his promise. And his promised blessing continued. Abraham died, went off the scene, and Isaac is blessed by God, and the program continues. Now, Isaac and Rebekah marry when Isaac is 40 and have twins when he is 60. Chapter 25 and verse 19, there's a key structural marker that shows up repeatedly in the book of Genesis. These are the generations of. That's the English translation. You could also use this phrase in English, and it is equally 
faithful to the text and this phrase in the original. This is what became of. And it's how the sections of the book of Genesis are marked out. You get to Genesis 2-4 after the stunning, glorious description of the creation of all things by God and you come to the phrase, this is what became of the heavens and the earth. You eventually lead to the flood in Genesis 6. Then you get to Genesis 6-9. This is what became of Noah's family. Then you get to 11:27. This is what became of Terah's family and his son Abraham. Then you get to chapter 37 and verse 2. This is what became of Jacob. Because from 37 on, it's about Jacob's family. So this is a key structural marker here. Now, God blesses his servant Isaac with a wife. You remember Abraham sent in Genesis chapter 24, he sends his servant back to Babylon to find a wife for Isaac. She came to the well after the servant prayed, and he picked her out and brought her back for Isaac's wife. Chapter 24 and verse 16 describes the encounter of the servant who went on this errand for Abraham to find the wife. He prayed. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. 24.16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up, and the servant realized this is the one that God had identified for Isaac to have as his wife. So they get married. He's 40 years old. And they've been promised offspring by God. So one year went by. Two years went by. Three years went by. 20 years go by. And there's no child. Now, do you see a pattern here? Abraham has promised a son. And it is not until they are well beyond childbearing years that God gives Abraham and Sarah Isaac. One could not attribute the birth of Isaac to human means. God intervened and brought it to be. In the same way, Isaac, he's married for 20 years, his wife experiences infertility. What a quiet, difficult, painful road infertility is. But while they went down that road, they were praying. According to chapter 25 and verse 26, when he's 60 years old, 20 years later, the twins are born. 20 years of anticipation, 20 years of believing, 20 years of wondering lest you not remember what 20 years is like, we're coming up in a few months on the 20th anniversary of 9-1-1. That happened in 2001. We are at 2021. That's 20 years ago. That's how long from marriage till birth of these children. That's how long they prayed. Now, this narrative then asks us three questions. Let's think of them. Let's crawl into the skin of these characters. Question number one, are we willing to persevere in prayer for 20 years to realize the promise of God? 
As you look around the auditorium this morning, I want to promise you there are people who are praying and longing and sustaining a prayer for what they want to see God do that they've prayed about for many, many years. They're praying and they're waiting and they're believing God and they're leaving it with him. It's not easy to persevere in prayer and stay at it over time. You know, many of us are good for that first 15 minutes. I was talking to a, a builder this week who was telling me that he went through a terrible economic time, that the economy was totally in the dumper right after he'd built all this stuff. And he was going from place to place, getting on his knees before God in these empty places that he has built and crying out and asking God to solve them. You know what? Many of us get on our knees, we cry out, and that first 15 minutes, our hearts are full of faith. We believe the Lord's going to do it. We know. Half hour later, we get just a little bit weak in the knees, but we're, we're, we're still kind of believing. Hour and 15 minutes into it. Now, now how, how about 20 years? 20 years. Praying and longing and waiting, giving it to the Lord, trusting in his wisdom. I was talking this week to Laurie Schweitzer, and I know she would appreciate your prayer for her and Cindy Moran, her sisters. Those sisters are praying about their sister, who's now up with family uh, near Dayton, Ohio, and uh, their sister is uh, dying. And they're all praying, and they've been praying. And they continue to pray. And they persevere in prayer. Again, it would be an encouragement if you would join in with them this week. What do you do with trauma that you face in life? You know what Isaac and Rebecca did? They prayed. They took it to the Lord. Trauma, pain, prayer. And then it was waiting and waiting. It was 20 years of waiting. Then, finally, birth for these twins. Remember the importune widow, the story Jesus told about the lady who wouldn't leave the judge alone? She kept going and going and going and going and going and going and going. And finally the judge says, I don't even you know, like this lady. I, I, I'm just going to give her what she wants to get her out of here. The persistent widow who would not be put off. Before Jesus tells that story, his preamble is worth its weight in gold. He says this, I'm going to tell you a story. Luke 18.1. I'm going to tell you a story because men ought always to pray and not faint. Arguing, Jesus did, that there's two possibilities. We either sustain persevering prayer or we get very close to fainting. It's praying or fainting. 20 years of a struggle and they kept praying. Are you fainting or are you praying this morning? Do you need encouragement to keep going? Allow the Lord to remind you that he hears every one of our cries for help. And he answers according to his will and for his glory and in his time. Now, the narrative asks us three questions. Let's secondly think of those three questions. Question number one, are we willing to persevere? For 20, in prayer for 20 years to realize the promise of God. Secondly, do we rightly appreciate the sweetness of relating well together? 
There's a psalm that begins, Psalm 133.1. Behold, how sweet it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That word sweet is really a cool word. It's used in Psalm 16.11, where the psalmist describes the sweet pleasures that are at the right hand of walking with God. Walking with Him and experiencing those, here's our term, pleasures forevermore at His right hand. It's the word used in 2 Samuel 23.1 in a preamble to the last words, the report of the last word of David. And David has a particular name in that passage. He's called the, here's our term, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful word. And the psalmist said, you know what's really sweet? When brothers dwell together in unity. Now, what is also, that's an affirmation of something that's true. The converse of that is true as well. What is not sweet is when the brothers don't dwell together in unity. And the story of Jacob and Esau is a story of not sweet. They don't dwell together in unity. And it starts early, real early, after conception, in the womb. And it's extraordinary. The children, according to verse 22, struggled in the womb in utero. They were out to, and it uses a very cryptic term, crush each other. It's the word struggled is used elsewhere for a joint being crushed, Ecclesiastes 12.6. Sometimes in the, the Ecclesiastes describes our physical demise and says sometimes we get to the point where our joints collapse and it's, it's they get crushed. And so here you have two in the womb, these twins who are seeking to crush each other. Hosea would reflect upon this later in a verse in 12.3 when he says, In the womb of Jacob, in the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in manhood he strove with God. So Jacob was a striver, a usurper, uh, and it was a big time fight all the time. Now notice what a grievous blow this would be in pregnancy. Look at verse 22. Isaac prayed to the Lord, verse 21, for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah's wife conceived. And they all lived happily ever after. Is that what it says? No, read the next verse. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? She goes from the pain of barrenness to trying to figure out what God is doing. Um we got to watch what we ask for in prayer because God will give it to us as he works out his own plans for his glory and our good. Remember, he leads us in the paths of his righteousness for his name's sake. It's interesting. She wanted the smile of God and she asked for it and she got it and then experienced this carnage and was saying, what in the world is this? The pregnancy became what seemed like to her the frown of God. Then the twins are born. Jacob has a hold of Esau's heel. Esau, yes, he's born first. They look down, there's, there's Jacob's hand on Esau's heel. It was a portent at birth. You know what? It was hard to be Isaac and Rebekah with these boys because they fought with each other. Andy and I were playing golf with a couple 
uh, we were on vacation. Never met them, put together. And along the way, we're trying to get to know them. And, and uh, the, the lady mentioned, you know, we have twin boys. And I said to her, oh, wow, that must have been so much work when they were young. To which she immediately replied, the hard years are now. And she revealed a hurting heart. And I would tell me more about that. And here you have a dear one who had 21-year-old boys making 21-year-old Esau-like, back to Zeitgeist last week if you were here, choices, tying everybody up in knots, estranged from each other and not talking to each other. And here's mom and dad trying to uh, referee the dispute and uh, deal with it. Now it's hard. Isaac dies when he's 180 years old. Now, that was back in the day where people lived longer than we are living now. But if you're doing the math, that's more than 100 years of wrangling with these boys over the struggle of how they relate. That's a lot. God-honoring relating for families, for churches, for work teams, for neighborhoods. God-honoring relating is so sweet. It not only honors the Lord, but it has the extra benefit of just tasting well and savoring the relating. May we sustain that here at Calvary. It is my judgment, and I'm not naive I know more about the warts here than anybody else, beginning with my warts. But I thank God for the spirit of unity that is here. The love that people have for each other and the work that people are doing to relating well. I want you to know that's sweet to our Lord. Third question, do we understand that the people of God do not exist by natural birth, but are born into existence by the spirit of God and God's sovereign choice? Now, as we think about this question, the answer to it, I want you to remember what Nora read in John chapter 1 and John chapter 3. Because Jesus gets to Nicodemus and he talks about how nobody comes into the family of God through natural birth. Remember, the Jewish people told Jesus at one point, hey, don't we have Abraham's blood? Well, you don't get into God's family by being birthed into the right family even if it's in a Christian home, because God would go on to, Jesus would go on to say, except a man, except a woman, except a boy, except a girl, be born again, born into God's family. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Keep that in mind as we think of this question. Please understand that you get to Genesis 25, 21, and there is no future for the people of God without God's intervention. You say, wait a minute, Isaac was a promised son. Yeah, he was. Isaac had a wife, Rebecca. Yeah, he did. But Isaac and Rebecca, on their own, could not have children. There was no future without God's intervention. Please understand that this matter of being in God's family is something that God does to bring it about. And that's what is described in this whole matter of being born again. This did not work out naturally through conception and birth. Isaac didn't look across the room at Rebecca and say, hey, it's time for us to make this promise fulfilled. Let's, let's have a baby. Because they worked at having a baby for 20 years and got nothing, zero, zed. And if it wasn't for the intervention of God, who graciously brought the promise to be, the, it would not have 
happened. At the end of the story, Isaac was not looking at himself in the mirror in the bathroom, flexing, saying, I'm virile. But he was saying, in our weakness, in our inability, God brought new life. And he always does. New birth, being born into the family of God, is a miracle of God and not a work of man. It's why Jesus said, don't, Nicodemus, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You heard Nora read the description that I'm going to re-emphasize to you in John chapter 1. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. How would you get in the family of God? Well, I'll tell you what. I just, I wanted to, so I did. Here's John's interpretation. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of the will of God. Do we understand that the people of God do not exist by natural birth, but are born into existence by the Spirit of God and God's sovereign choice? Were they born into God's family by being a blood relative of the right person? Answer, no. Were they born into the family of God by the will of the flesh or our interest in being in God's family? What does John say in John 1, 11 and 12? Were they born of the will of God who saved us and brought us in his family? Were they born of God's sovereign choice? Absolutely. And notice in the Bible, there's always perfect symmetry. Eric, I thought whosoever will could come. Absolutely. Whosoever will may come. Come with me to one passage. It's Matthew 11. And you know Matthew 11 as being a free offer of the gospel. And we love it and I love it. And if you're here this morning or you're listening and you've never received Christ as your Savior, listen to Jesus invite you freely to come to him. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. Let me read a few verses and comment on it. This is the familiar, come to me all you who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Free offer the gospel, completely free. Whosoever will may come. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hear the word of the Lord. It's not one or the other. It's not simply the free offer of the gospel. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden. We come because of what is previously described. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, 
come to me. It's both. It's not either or. It's both. And Isaac and Rebekah and their future was based on the intervention of God who brought about hope for the people of God by bringing this birth about. And that's how we all get in the family of God. He births us into his family. You say, Eric, I thought it was whosoever will may come. It absolutely is. And all who come get there because of his intervening grace that births them along. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Do we understand that the people of God do not exist by natural birth, but are born into existence by the Spirit of God and God's sovereign choice? They both go together. Now, let's face the lie. And the lie this week is this. What are Esau's fables? The lies he believed that tore his life in knots. The first one is this. Little habits never mushroom into bad ways of life. In Isaac's family, problem traits emerge early and appear never to have been addressed. Gestation is a mess. It's a terrible pregnancy for Rebecca. And she, in despair, says, Lord, what in the world is going on? Now, the suggestion in the text are that Though early on, Isaac and Rebekah are clued into what's going on with this conflict, they seek to address nothing. In fact, their parental style, which we'll talk about next week, which shows up in Genesis 25, 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. That never turns out well when parents have favored children. And you have this problem of rivalry anyway, and they accentuated it with their parenting style. And we'll talk more about that next week. But these traits emerge early. Rather than addressing this phenomenon, they adopt this parental style, which made it worse. So here they are driving along in life with those lights flashing in their dashboard, signaling that something's not right, but they choose not to address it. So this morning I ask you, are there any dashboard lights sending us life signals that we are not heeding? Could it be right now in our lives that we are ignoring warning signs that can now be seen? Now what I am not saying, especially if you're a parent, is to make a capital case out of every small thing you see in your children's lives. That's, I'm not arguing for that at all. But I am arguing for as you keep your finger on the pulse of shepherding your children's hearts and you begin to see patterns, the thing to do is not ignore the patterns that need to be addressed. Quite apart from parenting, what about our own souls, patterns in our own lives, edges we are shaving off, compromises that we begin to make? Little habits do mushroom into bad ways of life. And finally, we face issues by talking to God and listening to his word. The central part of this passage is verse 23, where God's voice comes in. This is like Psalm 46. Remember Psalm 46? God is our refuge and strength and very present help in a time of trouble. This grand description. And then suddenly you get to verse 10. 
Be still and know that I am God. God's voice is imposed on the circumstance. Here you have turmoil, consternation, misunderstanding, confusion. What happens? Rachel, Rebecca, seeks the Lord. And what brought her out of that confusion, what brought her out of that struggle, and isn't it true that in a broken world we all face struggle and confusion? You know what brought her out? It was a word from God. She did two things. She prayed and sought the Lord. What in the world's going on? I want your smile. This feels like your frown. And then God brought his word to them and it was on her knees with the word of God open before her that she began to understand what was going on. She took her why, look at verse 22, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? She took her why to the Lord, opened God's voice, listened, and found resolution. I thought of that hymn this week. There's one line in Sweet Hour of Prayer. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped thy tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. The idea is as the person prays, there's resolution to the struggle of what's going on. There's insight from the word of God. That's how she got on, by inquiring and by praying. What was her reflex? Her reflex was to get on her knees, to ask God what was going on, to open her heart to the voice of God, and it comes. This is well before ultrasound. She got the idea of what was going on in her womb and what she would face in life. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger, and immediately she had insight from God, from his voice about what was going on. She could see it then, ahead of time. In Surfside, Florida today, I believe the demolition engineers are firing the charges and taking down the other part of the condo that didn't fall in the wreckage. They're still investigating. The scene is still a rescue effort. It's ongoing. They're developing theories about what happened. Was it the pool deck leak of water over time and through the years that brought the integrity of the structure to face demise? Was it the seaside saltwater winds for 40 years? Was it water retention in the parking lot that waxed and waned and eroded the integrity of the structure? Pictures have now surfaced that have recently been taken were signs seen and yet avoided. Were signs seen that were unheeded and then brought collapse. Here's the deal. Isaac and Rebecca could see it ahead of time well in advance. Was their response? Well, one thing that the text records is they began to play favorites with the two boys, maybe even to try to placate them as a strategy. They never faced it. The little habits that began and were seen even at birth and in gestation got very, very bad. It got so bad they had to separate because of homicide was the threat. And I wonder this morning if God has brought you here 
to give you a picture and to realize that little things can grow into big things and he welcomes you with him facing the little things and resolving them by his grace. Is this a light on your dashboard? Is this a moment where God has brought you here to bring to the attention of your heart the need to face a little thing and resolve it in his grace so that the little thing does not become a big thing and run you into the ditch? And run me into the ditch. Let's pray and be found with a responsive heart. Will you bow your head with me, please? I want to ask you a question. Is God bringing to your attention any little thing in your life that left unaddressed will become a big thing? Is God bringing to your attention? Any breach in your integrity which, if left to fester and grow, would bring a nasty fruit of consequence that you'd never want to face? A little flirtation here, a little pornography, a little cheating, a little stiffing of somebody. If God is bringing to your attention something that you want to give to him this morning, I just want you, as we have our eyes closed and are responding to him, just to stand up where you are and be seated. Just stand up for a minute. Lord, you've brought this to my attention. Thank you. Be seated. Thank you. go to another front. Are you growing weary in praying and asking for his help? Well, let God say to you this morning, I'm hearing every prayer and I'm at work in ways you don't understand. Be encouraged this morning. Stay at it. If you're facing little things and it's a huge challenge and you're just getting weary facing them, let God give you strength to keep going. Let him give you a future and a hope. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, just this morning and right now, give your heart to him. Lord, we're going to sing and then we're going to leave. You know who's here. You know our thoughts. You search our hearts. You know what we need. And from your word, we know of the sufficiency of Jesus and your grace. And that mercy that we've been singing about this morning, that you lavish on us. We love that word. Lavish away, Lord, how we need you. 
bring healing to your people. Be with us in life's brokenness. Hear our cries for help. As we throw ourselves on your mercy and our weakness, Lord, help us address the little things that you're bringing to our attention. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name this morning. Hear us as we sing. Amen. Let's stand and sing before we go home.